Hey friends, I'm Jer Swigart, co-founder of the Global Immersion Project. Welcome to the Everyday Peacemaking Podcast and our first ever bonus season called Restoring Friendship. Everyday peacemakers are women and men who are joining God and one another in making all things new. We're people who are learning to see more accurately, immerse more courageously, and contend more creatively. Over the past decade, the Global Immersion team has had the privilege of accompanying thousands of American Christians and faith leaders in their journey toward becoming everyday peacemakers. Our conviction is that restoration is the mission of God, making peacemaking not an add-on to our faith, but the very essence of it. Our view of conflict is that it's inevitable. Of injustice is that it's real and that in all of its forms, it seeks to diminish the image of God in another. Both conflict and injustice play out internally, that's within us, interpersonally, that's between us, and systemically, that's within the infrastructure that seeks to organize us. While everyday peacemaking necessarily includes systemic change, it also involves the hard, slow work of becoming more whole, healthy, integrated individuals who are savvy at navigating hard conversations, mending interrupted relationships, and bridging difference into new ones. Put another way, the road to social transformation only ever goes by way of internal and interpersonal peacemaking. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, we've observed that differing perspectives on faith, politics, race, and even vaccinations have caused many to terminate relationships with family, friends, neighbors, and colleagues. It seems that our ability to navigate hard conversations, tend to interrupted relationships, and bridge differences into new friendships has degenerated. It's as though we're all aware of the fractured relationships in our lives, but many of us don't know how to restore the friendships. Our hunch is that the work of interpersonal peacemaking may be among the most radical and worthwhile efforts of our time. In fact, it may be the very embodiment of the way of love that Jesus is inviting us into. That's the hunch that drove us to create and facilitate the Restoring Friendship webinar series this spring. In this five-part webinar series, we invited five global peacemakers to reflect on how they prioritize relationships, tend to interrupted friendships, and build uncommon alliances. Throughout the spring, five of our global peacemaking friends and colleagues opened up their lives and shared with us how they do the hard, slow work of restoring friendship. In this episode, we hear from Twin Cities-based author and peacemaker, Oshita Moore, who invited us to receive the reality of our own belovedness so that we can better acknowledge the belovedness in one another. Here's Oshita. Uh, Oshita, welcome. Uh, anytime I get to be on the phone or on the screen with you, I feel like my life gets better and I become a better version of myself. So thank you for carving out some time to be with us, to train peacemakers in the work of interpersonal peacemaking in this particular conversation. And so um, take it away, introduce yourself and bring us into your life a little bit, your life, your work, your family, what it's like to navigate the pandemic in Minneapolis right now. And then we'll dive into yeah. that. Yeah. So hi, everyone. My name is Oshita Moore. Um, I am a pastor in the Twin Cities area. Um, I serve as a teaching pastor at Woodland Hills, which is a larger um, Anabaptist community, um, Jesus-centered um, 
church out here. And then I also partner with my husband as a pastor of this uh, smaller uh, church called Roots Covenant Church. Uh, and I serve as community life pastor there. So, um, so a lot of my ministry and a lot of my work is really rooted uh, in that interpersonal um, relationship and in internal peacemaking, uh, seeking wholeness and living holistically internally and with others in order for us to truly be a part of uh, dismantling broken systems that perpetuate oppression. So I'm more of a pastor than I am an activist, but I have had to really lean into a lot of that activism piece in this past year because we live in um, we live in St. Paul and George Floyd was murdered 10 minutes away from where we live. We have um, we have a lot of people who are passionate about anti-racism and we had a lot of people who were asking questions, just beginning to understand it. And so I really had to enter into um, a, not a new expression, but a deeper expression of my of my peacemaking um, as it pertains to anti-racism, uh, particularly for white people, just understanding like what this is, why does it matter? How does it, how is it in line with Jesus's picture of Shalom and what does it, um, what does it mean for us to live at peace with each other when we have these uh, systems that have been codified by the lie of white supremacy? So that's uh, that's really where I am right now in terms of like my leadership and what I'm passionate about. Um, but my, a little bit about me, I'm, I'm a Southern girl at heart. I love Minnesota though. I never wanna leave. This is my home. I love everything about Minnesota, um, but I'm from Texas. So I bring a lot of my Southern, um, culture and southern um, habits with me. So we do things like I make gumbo or red beans or rice every Monday because we live in New Orleans for a while while my husband um, was uh, serving in a low-income community. Then we evacuated New Orleans when Katrina happened. He went to seminary in Boston. Then we moved to LA for a little bit. Then we moved here. So I've lived all around the country and I really had to lean into or understand more like what does Jesus peacemaking ethic look like in different contexts with different people in different seasons of my life? Because I really came into this um, passion for peacemaking. I know we're going to get more into this, um, Jer. Uh, because when I first started doing peacemaking work, it was really rooted in uh, urban core development, really rooted in um, working with gang-affiliated youth. And, like We would have dinners with with gang leaders from different gangs around our tables and ask them to leave their guns at home, like things like that. We we were with our community when we lost students to gang violence. So like that was a huge part of me asking what, how can we deescalate this conflict? And what does the teachings of Jesus have to say about the reality of the, these kids' lives? They're surrounded by so much poverty, so much neglect, so much violence, so many stereotypes that they're expected to live into. What does honoring the image of God in them look like when everybody else says they are ended up for jail or death? Mm -hmm. um, so, but then when Katrina happened, we had to evacuate. And I was eight months pregnant with our second. We, our oldest was three. And when we moved to Boston, um, my husband went to seminary and I stayed home and cared for kids. Um, and then three months later, after we had our second, we found out we were pregnant with our third. So I have three little children. Mm. And everything that I knew about peacemaking or shalom seeking, or, you know, the peace, the peace work, peacemaking ethic of Jesus, like I could not engage in because I was caring for these children. And so that's really where I started exploring. And this is, this is why I love global emergence so much, exploring everyday peacemaking mm -hmm. and asking myself to rise to the challenge of being a peacemaker, but all the things that I thought made a peacemaker, like the 
skill set or the education or the opportunity to do these sensational acts of dismantling violence or de-escalating conflict, when none of those are working in my life, my actual real life is what I'm presented with, Jesus is still my Prince of Peace. Mm-hmm. So how do I show up as a peacemaker? Um, and that's where I built my peacemaking ethic um, in everyday, just relational ways. And that's where my first book, Shalom Sisters, um, came out of. Um, and then we moved around and we moved here and really found myself having a whole lot of conversations about race and justice and peacemaking, primarily because I can't believe that I can be at peace with you as a white person if I'm not at peace with myself as a black woman. Um, and in order for me to be at peace as a black woman, then I, I, I have to be aware and have conversations about the ways our world is set up that keeps people that look like me continually oppressed and prevent us from thriving and living into God's dream for us as we should be, which is what I define Shalom as God's dream for us as we should be. Um, and so because just people say like, how did you get into anti-racism work? And I'm like, I got into anti-racism work because I started to believe that God didn't make a mistake in making me black. And that there, that that God had a unique call and um, invitation for me as a black woman to own who I am and to from that place of um, confidence and love and peace within myself, then become a peacemaker. And that's just kind of the overflow to when I was like, I can't be at peace with myself. I can't be at peace with you if I'm not at peace with myself. So that's really like where I am. So like now mm-hmm. I live in St. Paul with my teenagers. I have an 18 year old a 15-year-old and a 14-year-old. I have a dog who will probably bark because Mel's going to come anytime soon. Um, And I pastor and I just deeply love white people who are um, on this journey at any point because it really matters that they're stepping up to this call of peacemaking. Uh, I love that so much, Yoshida. And I I wonder... Let's talk... I want to get into that in a minute, but but even, even peacemaking... As Christian people, I, I I don't know what your experience has been in that regard, but my experience in like in in articulating that I'm I'm a Jesus centered, a Jesus oriented peacemaker, it's actually troubling to people. It's problematic. They're like, I don't I don't understand the connection between the Christian faith and peacemaking. Yeah. So talk to us, like theologize with us a little bit around uh, around the essence of your Jesus centered peacemaking. Live yeah. in a milieu. We live in a milieu where it's like our faith has actually been uh, weaponized to dominate. That's that's our yep. reputation, right? Not yep. not to bring peace. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, how much time do we have? Okay. So um, one of my favorite theologians, Jonathan Martin, says, "If you want to have really good theology, you need to start at the garden." Um, and so for me, when I think about my my peacemaking, it's really rooted in the Hebraic concept of shalom. And when we look at the garden, we see that, that it was full of shalom. It was God's dream as for the world as it should be. There was health in the land. There was health. There was um, peace between humans and the animals. There was a sense of calling. There was intimacy with God. So when I think of my work as, as a peacemaker, um, I think of it first as what is and inherent what is what is broken, what's not working the way it should in this in, in this instance, and then how can I partner with God in bringing the best? Like getting it back to I, I say the, the it is goodness of the garden. How can I be a partner with God to bring the it is good? Um, so that's the kind of the first like mm-hmm. litmus test, if you will. I I, I really believe that that peace and more specifically shalom, which is this picture 
of the world as it should be, as vibrant and whole, full of love, full of intimacy, exactly the way God wanted it. No shame, no conflict. Um, that is part of my, that, that was, that's knitted into the way God wanted the world to be. And so if I'm going to partner with God, I'm going to try to get to that point. But then we look at the life of Jesus, right? And Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but fulfill the law. And then he goes on to say that the law hangs on two commandments, love, love God and love your neighbor. And then we watch as Jesus over and over again, shows us how to take things that we believed were the ways we should interact with each other and push it to its furthest extent where we are fully loving our neighbor and we're fully loving God. And it's a challenge. And for me, peacemaking is that pushing it a little bit further, like actually saying, what if Jesus actually meant that? What did Jesus actually meant that blessed are the peacemakers? What did Jesus actually mean for us to love God and love our neighbor as we engage with each other? And so that for me, there's a certain list of things that I that I believe are inherent or important to my peacemaking. One is nonviolence. So I deeply believe that Jesus came to model for us a way of living with each other um, of nonviolence and actually healing. And I look at Jesus on his way to the cross, being arrested in the garden and having an opportunity to validate Peter's instinct to use violence to protect Jesus, which is, I mean, some would say like, that's a good, and I think many like Christians would say, that's a good instinct, like defend your faith, defend what's important to you. But Jesus says those who live by the sword die by the sword. And then Jesus kills that person mm -hmm. who is actually coming to harm him. So that says something to me about a peacemaker, that part of this work is choosing to heal when I have an instinct to harm. Um, the other thing that I look is I look at the diversity of the disciples, not just like while Jesus was going through his ministry for those three years, but then after his resurrection and then as they were building the church. And I look at how different they were. And that tells me that Jesus expects us to bring our full selves, even if we disagree with each other, into relationship with each other, because there's something about the kingdom of God. There's something about the Jesus way that will bind us together, that we can all rally under, and that we can have these conversations in love and civility with one another, believing that we're moving towards that end goal of shalom, where we are loving God, and we're loving our neighbor, and we're modeling a different way of being in this world. Um, I call, I, I, I refer to this often as like a third way. Many Anabaptist theologians refer to it as a third way. Um, and then I also deeply believe that peacemaking is spoke that part of my calling to be a peacemaker is not just, I'm so at peace with you, Lord, you're so good. Or I'm so at peace with myself, or I'm so at peace with my neighbor. Like, but I really believe that peacemaking is a disruption and exposure mm -hmm. of violence and systems. And I look at the whole of Jesus' ministry when he was offered kind of two options, like pay taxes or, or not, or condone or condemn the woman caught in the act of adultery. Like Jesus charted this other way that kind of held the, the spirit of the law and the intent, but like created this new way of being that exposed kind of all these loopholes in these systems that continually oppress people. And then I look at the cross where Jesus was dying. He was dying a death as a, as a, uh, as a criminal and he was exposing the, the, the violence of the Roman empire by being humble and by submitting to it and sacrificially loving and not, and not using retributive violence or anger. Um, and then I also like deeply root my peacemaking in the Sermon on the Mount. So when somebody says that they're a follower of Jesus and then, but they kind of, they kind of, uh, they're iffy on this idea of being a peacemaker. I really, I really try to dig in and ask them like, what is, 
what is that about peacemaking that they don't like or that they struggle with? And oftentimes there's this passive milk toast, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, irrelevance to peacemaking in their mind or a weakness to peacemaking in their mind. But when I kind of walk them through and say like, actually peacemakers, we are, we are the ones who are, who are standing up and who are having to lean on courage and who are, um, we're not passive at all. We, we are actually like standing in and being mm-hmm. like these massive disruptors but we're being disruptors because we love. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Spot on. I mean, one of the things that we say is that everyday peacemakers stand in front of any and every bulldozer that are, that are crushing people. Like it is a costly, courageous way of life uh, mm-hmm. fueled by Jesus. Now here, here's what I love. And we're going to, we're going to stay high level. And then we'll, friends, we will sink deeper in, in a minute. Trust me. Um, I hear you talking about your commitments to peacemaking specifically with an emphasis on nonviolence um, and disruption. And I know that I might be a little glitchy with my Wi-Fi has COVID. Um, but what, what, um, I want you to take those two concepts and help us understand your unique calling as a peacemaker between the black community and the white community with a special emphasis on white peace, aspiring white peacemakers. You do this with nonviolence and with disruption. I think I see you marry these things together. So talk to us, about your unique calling and how this plays out. The work of peacemaking is your calling and how that plays out. Yeah, so um, so about a year and a half ago, um, I went to a gala um, where uh, they were trying to raise money for this nonprofit uh, that our friends were affiliated with. And, um, and I just, I saw so much good that night and, you know, from the white leadership, cause it was, it's, it's a, it's a white led nonprofit. Um, and they cared about justice and they cared about, um, elevating the voice of leadership there, um, in, in the different, cause they were working overseas. So they were, they cared about elevating the leadership and equipping local leaders. Like they were doing so many good things around justice. But then they um, appropriated uh, an African-American spiritual um, in, in a way that just really grieved my heart. And, uh, and there was really just no way that there's no, uh, they really didn't talk about like the origin of this song or the meaning of it to the black community. And I was looking around the room at other, um, you know, attenders of color, black attenders to this gala. And I was just really, uh, I just really felt like there are so many people who are passionate about justice, who are passionate about um, dismantling broken systems, who are learning and listening and doing the work, but then they have blind spots. Um, and they don't realize that even sometimes, that even though they've made these great leaps around peacemaking in some areas, um, there's still a lot to go. And so I, I, I kind of just, and this was like on a whim, I just wrote an Instagram post and I just titled it Dear White Peacemakers. And for me, it was like, I wanted to acknowledge that there are there are white people who are doing this work and who um, sometimes need to be called in more when they've been so used to being called out around this, um, around these areas. And that for me, if I'm going to, if I'm going to work towards God's dream of the world as it should be, if I'm going to work towards shalom, which is this picture of harmony and wholeness and vibrancy, um, it's going to have to be, it's going to have to include white people. And I'm going to have to care about their wholeness and their peace and their, um, and their shalom. And so I wrote this post and it, 
people responded to it. And then I just started having uh, more conversations with people, um, white people who are who are doing this work. And I just started saying like, you're, you're a peacemaker. Like when you do this anti-racism work, it's not just you becoming quote unquote woke, which I know is like a hard word right now. There's a lot of baggage around that word. And it's not about you um, learning all the right things or taking all the right classes or following all the right people. Like what you're actually doing, like when we talk about this work of anti-racism is this is peacemaking work. And I believe that this is the peacemaking work of our moment right now, of this generation, this binding up this ancient wound that is caused by white supremacy. We are at the forefront of it. And I cannot uh, imagine a world where all is made right if the power dynamic has been shifted in such a way that white people accept shame or dehumanization, or they're not dignified and loved and respected in this work. I don't want, I'm not interested in the conversation of flipping that power dynamic, um, because I'm not going to cause trauma out of my own trauma. When we have an instinct to harm, we seek to heal, right? And so for me, my anti-racism work is rooted in what does healing and wholeness look like for all of us? And so that means when I am working with white people, I acknowledge that this is hard work and that there are a lot of valid questions you may have. I may disagree with the premise of your question. They may even offend me, but I know that if we're having this conversation, that means you're curious and I will honor and respect that curiosity. Um, and also I feel like it's so important for white people to have spiritual practices, to have spaces where they can process those hard feelings, to be able to say like, I'm crying, this makes me sad. And to not be afraid of their tears because those tears uh, are viewed as a weapon, I make space for those tears. Um, because I, like I said, I'm not interested in that shift of that power dynamic. I'm interested in a world that looks like as Dr. King cast this vision before as it looks like the beloved community. My anti-racism work is deeply rooted in belovedness. Uh, I am beloved, you are beloved, we are beloved. I am owning my belovedness. I need you to own your belovedness. We proclaim each other's belovedness and we become the beloved community so that we can dismantle these systems of oppression and violence mm -hmm. together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so talk to us about how this post to a book that launches in five days, May 8th, Dear White Peacemakers. T tell us about the journey, a little bit about the book, and then we're going to dive in. Yeah, so Dear White Peacemakers was, um, uh, it was a, it started out as, um, it's so interesting, Dear White Peacemakers started out as a collection of letters about like, here are the things you need to know, white people, when you're doing this work. Um, but then George Floyd was murdered, and um, I sat with a lot of white people who were exhausted because they had been doing this work for a long time, and they were going to all the rallies and they were posting all the time and having all these conversations with people, their white brothers and sisters, their relatives or coworkers or friends who are like not into it. So they were, you know, putting themselves in these hard, uh, exhausting conversations. Um, I also sat with a lot of white people who were like, I don't get it. And I don't think that there's any place for me to say like, I don't get it but like, I don't get it <laughs> or, and, and everything in between. And I just realized that um, the book, we don't need another, we didn't need another, like a professorial, like we didn't need another book of like, here's all the terms you need to know. Like I say this all the time, you will always have calls to action, white peacemakers. Like around this work, you will always have calls to action. You can go to Instagram right now, find 
a dozen calls to action. Because unfortunately, white supremacy is so pervasive. It's in so many parts of our culture. So it's expressed in so many different ways in our world. It's harming so many black and brown people. Um, so I'm not worried about you knowing what to do. I am worried about you um, knowing how to engage that as a whole person, as a beloved person. I'm, I'm concerned about you building systems and building practices and rhythms that will allow you to do this work for the long haul. Um, and I care more about you having a hopeful view and knowing what you're working towards, not just what you're working against. So the book shifted away from that to really me sharing how I am, how I decided to or came to the place to embrace this work as a peacemaker. Kind of, uh, I start the story talking about, uh, I start the book talking about um, a coach who called my son the N word and me um, choosing to invite him into a conversation about race and not attack him and how hard that was for me. And the dynamics I had to deal with uh, with other black other black parents in the school, and the school itself. Um, but that was a choice that I could that I had to make out of integrity. If I look at the Jesus way, and I want that to reflect the way that I do anti-racism, I had to do it that way. And then I just kind of go into my ethos and anti-racism peacemaking. Um, and then the rest of the book is really centered around the Sermon on the Mount, kind of unpacking some of the teachings of Jesus um, as guideposts for our anti-racism work. And, and I use the Negro spirituals as sort of like a, like a narrative thread to help us kind of understand, um, you know, a different aspect of anti-racism and just really see how um, the Black community has been calling and inviting us into this picture of Shalom from the very beginning, and that there's some richness there for white peacemakers. Mm -hmm, so. mm -hmm. And friends, I've read it. I've endorsed it. It's a book that needs to be in the library of every peacemaker. So uh, mm -hmm. so get it. It launches in five days. Congratulations on that, Oshida. Thank you. Um, all right, let, let's get into the nitty gritty here. Um, talk to us a little bit. I, I, how are you experiencing the fragility of relationships right now mm. in your everyday life? And what is, what's, some of the, what's some of the work that you're doing uh, to, to tend to the interrupted stuff uh, with existing friendships and bridge new relationship, uh, difference into new relationships? What, what are you doing? Um, you know, I'm doing a lot of listening and I'm doing a lot of, um, I'm asking a lot of questions. Um, you know, there are a couple of people in my life who are, um, who are really frustrated that I have been very outspoken about anti-racism, um, in the past couple of years and, um, who are, who are precious to me. And so one of the things that I am, that I have chosen to do is to, to learn to, to speak, to listen to them. So to learn to ask good questions, um, and to listen. And to kind of have a long, like I keep using this phrase, but long haul view of this work, I think we are so conditioned. And I, and I talk about this in Dear White Peacemakers as I talk about different aspects of white supremacy culture. And white supremacy culture is so rooted in an instant fix and so rooted in uh, like quantitative results. And I think with this work, because this work is relational, it has to be organic and we have to say, that the goal is not a win, like I get you to agree with me. Mm -hmm. The goal is that we end the conversation ready and eager and, and open to, to, to having more conversations. Mm -hmm. That it's just like we left the door open because we trust each other, we've been loving and respectful. And while we may not 
ever 100% agree. Um, we agree on each other's belovedness and we agree on each other's inherent worth and dignity. Um, I've also learned to set really good boundaries. So part of the fragility that I have noticed in some of my relationships is um, is this uh, is defensiveness, you know, a, a lot of defensiveness. So I can I can ask a lot of questions um, and I can have space for conversations, but that doesn't mean I don't share my own perspective and that doesn't mean I don't answer some of those questions that I ask too, because I, I, I want people to know my heart and um, I've, I've noticed a lot of defensiveness. And, um, and so part of my work of peacemaking for myself is setting healthy boundaries. Um, and so I, I don't, you know, I think one of the things that people um, are concerned about when they think of peacemaking as this long haul, like, commitment to be continuing to be in relationship is that we're going to open. And I think this is what people often think about peacemakers is that we're just doormats and we just let people walk all over us. Um, but for me, peacemaking is honoring the Imago Dei in myself and seeking peace in myself. And so I do set boundaries. So oftentimes boundaries in relationships where I know that I, that person is defensive will look like, okay, so for instance, if I, if it's online, so I have a whole different set of relational rules mm. for peacemaking with online relationships. But if it's online and somebody posts something, I don't argue in comment threads. I, if you look at anything I post, if somebody says something negative, um, I usually don't engage there because I've probably DM'd that person and say like, hey, here's my Google phone number. Um, uh, if you want to have a conversation um, or if it's somebody that, that I have no idea who they are and I, I suspect that they're just somebody that's out to troll because they're bored and they're getting their sense of identity and worth from their online interactions. Um, I'll, I'll engage with them in DMs, but I give myself three back and forths. Um, and then when they, when they've like been defensive three times, I'm like, well, thanks so much. And, you know, I'm praying for you. But if it's somebody that I know, or that I, that know somebody that I know that's a part of my congregation or, or in some way, shape or form, I'll give them my Google number because I feel like, um, one of the ways that I combat the dehumanization of conflict right now is try to humanize people as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So while it may take more time for me to do like a 30 minute phone call, um, I take that time because it's important for me to remember that I am dealing with a fellow image bearer who has questions and has stories and who's on a journey. And, and I get to walk alongside them at this point of their journey um, in some capacity to, to help them kind of understand the Jesus way a little bit more. So, you know, that's kind of what I'm seeing. And also like, I'm a huge fan of therapy. I'm a huge fan of mediators. I'm a, I'm a big fan of not, of not triangulating conflict. So I feel like some of the relationships that I have, I have said, you know what, let's actually bring somebody else in or, um, you know, one relationship I'm in therapy with that person um, to process some things. So I think that, that is a, that's a valid way of us continuing to be peacemakers is knowing our limitations uh, emotionally, physically, um, spiritually, and allowing somebody else in too. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, I mean, the, the, your, your practices are very tangible and it sounds like you're tenacious about this. And I, I love what you said earlier as well that peacemaking is a relational endeavor. You, you can't legislate it. You can't force someone to the, you know, it's like, it's relationship, yeah. it's relational, you know? Yeah. I think you did a really good job, even in, in, in your expressions there around um, talking about how you, like with your boundaries and, uh, and, but you also, you also, 
you live with this sense of invitation. You give people your Google. Oh, uh, people who you may, I don't, I don't know how well you know these folk. Maybe you can, you can explain that a little bit more. But like holding the tension between conviction and invitation, mm-hmm. many of us think that what we actually have to do, what peace looks like is that everybody just kind of compromises. Mm-hmm. Or I, I, just meta- I just metabolize, let water flow under the bridge, and over time, I guess we'll be okay again. Turns out that's yeah. not peace. We're still no, fractured, no. and it will leak mm-hmm. out. So how do you hold yeah. that tension? Yeah, so I make it clear. Uh, so for instance, we're talking about anti-racism. I make it clear that I'm not interested in any, <laughs> in, in any arguments pro-white supremacy um, because I'm not interested in reinforcing systems that prevent me from experiencing shalom um, and living at peace with myself um, or people that look like me. Um, and we have seen that white supremacy is a violent culture and violence system that begets violence. So I'm not interested in that. So, um, and that usually, <laughs> that, that usually uh, is, uh, is a boundary that some people are not, like when I explain what, what white supremacy is and how, you know, if you're gonna have this conversation, I, I, I want you to know that I'm, I'm not going to be for Confederate, you know, statues. That's just not something that I'm I'm going to ever be convinced to. I can be I can hear more about your story about how your Southern heritage matters to you, and I, as a Southerner, can you know engage with you and explore different ways of honoring our Southern heritage that's not rooted in violence and death and theft and oppression. Like I can we can have that conversation, but so I usually set up some boundaries to begin with, um, and I'm pretty clear with people um, where I'm coming from. I think that helps, you know, that helps kind of uh, set the set the boundaries so that I can, so the tension I'm living in is that tension of harm and heal and not, uh, and not passivity um, or being a doormat and, or being a jerk and flipping that power dynamic, which I know somebody m- mentioned in the questions and we can circle back to that because um, I'm not interested in being a moral authority and saying like I'm better than you because I'm a person of color and you're a white person so you have to agree with me but I will say like I'm not better than you but I am made in God's image and so I'm not gonna have a conversation about something that refutes what I see in scripture or what the spirit has made clear to me in my walk with him um, and so usually that that happens and then and so that kind of helps with that tension um, you know I also I also am very, uh, I'm, I'm very into, I try to be very uh, thoughtful about acknowledging uh, my vulnerability and acknowledging when I can't take a conversation further. Mm-hmm. So for instance, if I am, if I'm engaging with somebody and they keep pushing and they keep pushing, they're defensive, they're, they're not interested in, they're, 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 they're just interested in arguing. I have no problem with thinking, with uh, practicing peace by saying, you know what, this conversation isn't really fruitful for either one of us anymore. Um, and you're actually saying things that are really hurtful for me. And and I want to continue having a, a good view of you. I want to continue living at peace with you. I think we need a table list. I think we maybe not, maybe, maybe we shouldn't talk about this. Maybe we should both read something and come back and talk about that, talk about those concepts in that. Um, because it's clear that we're not, we're, we're talking past each other. We're not speaking to each other. Um, I make it awkward for the sake of peace. Cause I know that's an awkward way to like, to, but I, I feel like that's important. Um, I think too often I've 
I have counseled so many white peacemakers who push and push and push and push. And they feel exhausted. They feel defeated. They've exhausted their the person they're in a conversation with. They those person, those people feel defeated, or they dig their they dig their heels in even more. And now it's even harder to just even get them to say like Black Lives Matter because they do matter to God, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like it's really important for us to be peacemakers who model the Jesus, the like the humble, the humble way that Jesus modeled um peacemaking and being like. I am human. I am vulnerable. And I know, and, and, and us saying like, I, you can't continue hurting me in these conversations. Um, and maybe I'm not. And the other thing too, is I feel like because we have oftentimes white supremacy culture causes us to have a higher view of ourselves or a larger, larger view of our overestimation of our capacity. Um, we think that it's all up to us. Like, like, like we're going to be the only person in the entire world who's go, who's ever going to have like a say or an opportunity mm-hmm. to engage with that person. And I think that we need to have our have a view of ourselves as we are a community of peacemakers. And I am just I'm just planting the seed or I'm watering it. I I'm just a part of this moment of peacemaking, this conversation with this person at this time, and you know possibly. They'll they'll see something, they'll hear something, they'll read something, it'll reinforce something I said. The spirit, like we have to trust the work of the spirit. The spirit can do work in that person's life. I'm just showing up and being a faithful peacemaker. And I think if we can kind of just take a deep breath and just recognize that we are one of many. And that's why that's why I make the beloved community my North Star and anti-racism work, because this is a community effort. Um, because God is a relational God. And so this work is a is relational work. Um when we can do that, then I then I feel like I can be able to say those kind of things like, you know what, this isn't working. And I don't think that we should continue having this conversation in this in this way. Mm-hmm. I, I of being okay with making it awkward. You know, like we're not we can either continue to push and hurt each other, or one of us has to be the one to say that we need to take a break. You know, I think yeah. that's a really helpful practice. I want to get to the Q and A's here, but one more question before I do, how do you, not in a performative way, but in a legitimate, authentic way, how do you and demonstrate teachability yourself? You, you know, like how, how do you in interpersonal conflict? What are some of the things that you do with your body? What are the words that you use that demonstrates that you too are being what the, the gold that's being offered at least? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the very first thing, like I said, is I try to take it, I try to make it as uh, humanizing an engagement as possible. Um, so if somebody corrects, like, so if somebody that I, that I trust corrects me about something that I've said or written or done, um, like in a text or an email or something like that, um, I try to, to make it as humanizing as possible by getting on the phone with that person, by having a Zoom meeting. Um, and because that's important for me to, to be, to remember that this is relational work and I need to, I need to view them as another person and I need to bring my full self to it. Um, I ask questions like, help me understand. So a phrase that I use often is, um, help me understand what you mean when you say this, or help me understand this idea, or can you tell me more about, um, so that kind of open-ended questions, um, 
when somebody when somebody uh, corrects me, um, I often, you know, and this might be, uh, you know, I have to acknowledge that I'm a black woman doing this work. And so I have some, you know, trauma responses that I have just learned over my life that I have to ask myself, is that a trauma response or is that a peacemaking response? Mm. Um, But sometimes if I feel comfortable, I will apologize and I'll say, I'm sorry that I said this. Help me understand why that was offensive. So for instance, um, when I was writing Dear White Peacemakers, it was really important for me to do a land acknowledgement. And the first draft of Dear White Peacemakers, I had a land acknowledgement and I had a Dakota prayer. Um, And after like talking to several different um, Dakota theologians, they were all really like, this is okay, this is fine. But then um, somebody else read it and they had a lot of pause and it was it was actually offensive to them. Um, and they were not Dakota, but they are native. And um, I was, and, and, and my like, my like writer teacher hot, I, I could have been like, listen, I've talked to these notable Dakota theologians. Like this is their prayer and they said, it's okay. Why are you now saying something to me like this? You're not even Dakota, but that's like such a, I mean, that is, that is such an ignorant position for me to have. And, and the reason I share this is because I want white people to know that even as a person of color, I have these blind spots. So I just sit with her and, and, and say, help me understand why is this a problem? Um, I really want to do better. And, um, and so I, I ended up after, after some conversation, I ended up leaving it in just because I felt like it was helpful. But if you read DIY Peacemakers now, it's not in there because after some other conversations with other people, I just realized, you know, I just don't, I, it's not helpful for some of these people. This person gave me a red flag on it. I don't need it in there. I don't need it in there. And, and it was, it, and it, it was my commitment to relational wholeness um, that I took it out, but I, I did have to like kind of process it all. And to this day, there are people who read the book that in that first format that it had that prayer in, they were like, that prayer was so beautiful. I don't know why you took it out. And there's one friend, I call her my book wife, because she's walked with me through the whole book writing process. She was like, do not take that book, that prayer out. You leave that prayer in. You worked so hard and you like, and I was like, I'm just going to take it out for the sake of peace. Um, mm. And so th- that's, you know, being willing to, um, to, do, to take the step back, you know, Greg Boyd calls his power under to come under, choose the humble posture and say, you know, I don't have to be right, but I do have to be in right relationship with you. um, And I will make those sacrifices. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Thank you. I want to turn to Q&A. Melanie asks, at what point do we just need to take the dust off our feet and move on? Uh, How Mm -hmm. how would you interact with that? Um, I think a couple of things. That is a personal question question that I would maybe process with like a faith leader or somebody who knows me like my husband I'm a two on the Enneagram my husband's an eight on the Enneagram he is really really good at helping me know my 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 threshold um and what I can and can't do and what I can and can't take on um and and relationships that are that are becoming toxic or that have capacity like space to become life-giving or even um a good practice of of me being in that relationship as a peacemaker, like it's it's good for me and my growth as a peacemaker. So I think that um, it's good to have people that you can talk about some of these relationships with that don't know that person. They're not affected by what's going on in your interaction with them and they who love you and who will say, you know what, I think that 
I think it's getting to a, a, an unhealthy place. Um, because I think oftentimes when peacemaking gets really hard for us, um, we are we are in a culture that just says like, bounce, you know, like that self care girl, like you don't need them, like so to be really careful about viewing shake the dust off your feet as uh, as a punishment, um, and leaning into it that way. I actually, think that shake the dust off your feet is more of a protection of you've done all that you can. And so now it's time for you to move on. Trust that the work you did was spirit inspired. Trust the spirit to do some work. And then somebody else who has some more energy, has more contacts, more experience can come in and maybe pick up from where you left off. Again, it's that piece of we're not the only ones who have a, who are who can speak truth into others' lives. Um, and I also think that it's really good, like I said before, to say uh, if they say something offensive, hey, that made me really sad. I feel. I feel like we can't continue having this conversation until I work through some of the emotions of what you just said. Um, so let's table this. So. Mm-hmm. Give me um, an example in your life where you've had to table it. Mm-hmm. Can you get really practical with us in terms of how you indicate to that person that the door is always open, that there's always a spot at the table when they're mm-hmm. ready to come back to the table? How do you do that? Yeah, so I had... Um, I, I've been teaching uh, in different capacities for anti-racism, and I spoke at a I spoke at a church, and a couple of days later, I got an email from somebody who did not agree with me. I did the back and forth three times, um, and then I gave them my Google number, and they just seemed to just reiterate the same sort of things. Like the conversation was not moving forward. They just keep. They just felt it felt like they had their talking, their, their speak, their their lines and they just wanted to keep saying them over and over again um and so I basically ended the conversation by saying well well, I think we've we've talked enough about this I I, you know my heart around this I thank you for sharing more I understand your heart I mean for me even if I disagree with somebody I recognize them showing up even in that defensive space is them giving me time not giving me time but them you know committing time to this conversation and so I just say like hey I acknowledge like you, you committed some time to this conversation. You are obviously a very passionate person. Mm. Um, but I don't think that, I don't think we can continue this conversation, but you have my phone number or you have my, uh, you have my email, you know, uh, maybe after you've read a few things or if you have some more questions, um, you can send them to me. And in a few weeks, we can circle back if you want. Um, sometimes I have like certain resources that I send people um, when I when they, when they have the same sort of questions because I, I get the same sort of questions I'll send them that resource and say like hey based on our conversation it seems like you have questions around this idea why don't you read this if you have any questions about it you know let's talk about this mm-hmm. I have found that um, having a having a resource to talk about having something to circle back to uh, can de-escalate the conflict um, because then it's not just your ideas and what you're passionate about and you're not like you're not personalizing it. You're saying, well, this is how this is what we learned around this. Let's talk about this. I want to hear more of your thoughts around it. Um, so I I'm a real big resource person, but I'm a teaching pastor, so I guess that's part of the course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, would you would you pull up the Q and A uh, on your screen, Oshita? There there are there are two questions sure. I would I would love for you to take a look at. One by Jen. Um, Adriana at the bottom. And I, I just wonder mm-hmm. how, how you read those questions and how you would interact with them. Mm, okay. So you said Jen and then who was the other person? A- Adriana. Adriana. Okay. Um, uh, Adriana, so Jen- a- Adriana's second one at the very bottom. 
Okay, I see it. Okay, so so the first question is, would you define white supremacy as primarily performative as opposed to peacemaking, which is primarily relational? Yes, full stop. Um, and how do you disrupt performative defensiveness in conversations? Well, um, I reckon for me, and I talk about this in Dear White Peacemakers, I view defensiveness as a trauma response rooted in fear. Um, and scripture says perfect love casts out fear. So this response may not be really like popular, Jer, but when somebody is defensive um, with me, I ask them, I try to ask questions to help me understand um, their fear. So I can say like, wow, I can see that the idea of taking down a statue makes you feel really uncomfortable because that's all you've ever known is that statue has been there. Um, and so, and just acknowledging that, like saying like, I see that fear. Can you maybe, can you help me understand why that statue is more like so important to you when you've heard people who look like me say that statue reminds them of lynching and makes them feel unsafe in their city? Why is it important to you? Um, in, in light of this information. So I think the ver the first thing that I that I try to do to disarm defensiveness is to acknowledge that they're defending something. Um, I think oftentimes we attack people for defending something, but if they're defending it, it matters to them. And so mm -hmm. saying like, I see that that matters to you. I think that, um, I, think it's I think that it's not helpful for it to have such a high place in your in your mind or your in your thinking around this, um, but I see that it matters to you. And I think oftentimes when 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 I say that, it kind of takes the steam out because they're prepared for me to be like, "You're wrong. You're the worst. You're a racist or whatever." Which I don't call white people racist, which is a whole other thing. But um, but when I say like, I see that you're protecting something that's really important to you. Um, this is really really important to me. So can we? How can we? have a conversation around that, um, I think that opens up a space for relational healing that I don't think um, is often offered in that space. Um, also, and I'm gonna say this, as a black person doing this work, um, I there are certain boundaries and, and conversations that I don't engage with because it's just not healthy for me. So I'm really invested in helping white people know how to do that kind of work because sometimes I can't. Because like I said, I'm not going to agree with something that reinforces white supremacy, which reinforces uh, the stripping of my Imago Day. So I'm really like part of my ministry or part of the work I want to do is equipping white people to be able to do this kind of disarming work with white people because they don't have, you don't have the same emotional visceral reaction to these conversations that I do because my very life is on the line around some of these topics and it's not so much for you. So so helping white people understand how to do this is really important to me. So mm -hmm. um, Jen, I hope that answered your question. Okay, um, Adriana or Adriana, I hope that's, I hope I'm saying it right. Please correct me. Um, so Oshita, can you talk about the intersection of your faith-based work with secular anti-racism efforts that have common moral ethical foundations? How do you engage with any such efforts, if at all, for example, supporting public figures, et cetera? Um, so I, that's a, this is an interesting question because I'm actually a part of a team right now trying to figure out how to engage with politics from a like a peacemaking third way perspective so um you know 
when I engage with this work, I primarily am dealing with Christians or people who at least are interested in Jesus. Maybe they, they wouldn't identify as Christians, but they're interested in the teachings of Jesus. So um, I, I lean pretty heavy on the teachings or the way of Jesus for when I'm teaching anti-racism. But um, it's an intersection of your faith-based work with secular anti-racism. Well, I mean, I think that, oh, here's an, here's one thing that's important for me. I feel like um, oftentimes when Christians get, <laughs> sometimes when, when American Christians get excited about an idea, um, we kind of want to change the language around it if the language makes us uncomfortable. Um, so for me as a Christian, I honor the work of secular sociologists, philosophers, um, historians, educators, I honor the work. And so if they say, this is, a this is the tried and true definition of race, I'm going to say that this is what race is. I'm not going to come up and like mm -hmm. try to create another word, another phrase, or this is what white fragility is. I will say, okay, this, you, you've worked hard on this. Um, as a Christian, I'm going to be humble enough to come under and say, Okay, so this is what white fragility is. But as a Christian with my with my framework, I see fragility as defensiveness. I see defensiveness as fear. Oh, there's something in scripture that helps me understand fear. So that's what I'm going to do. The reason this is super, super important is a lot of these people are people of color who have spent a lot of time mm -hmm. forming these ideas. And when we as American Christians come in, and when white American Christians come in and they try to change the language by saying, the blessing of whiteness. <laughs> um, it is a deep offense to the work that they have done. And part of dismantling white supremacy is white people learning to come underneath the leadership and the, and the thoughts and the work of people of color. And so my intersection of that is that humbling, I'm gonna come underneath and learn. Um, Oshita, thank you with us and for opening up your life in this way. Uh, I'm gonna, I, I want you to have the last word. Uh, and so how would you bless and encourage this community of aspiring peacemakers? Um, you know, I would bless you to stay curious. That's not, you know, that's not a new phrase, but curiosity really is a reflection of humility. Um, and I think that that is so needed for white peacemakers right now. I think that's so needed for people of color who are looking in seeing white, white people access humility and not a humility that's rooted in shame. So um, so I guess my final word is that I am beloved and you are beloved and we are beloved. And so let's go out and build and become the beloved community. Amen and amen. Ciao for now, folks. Thanks, Ashita. Welcome. Bye. Thanks for listening to episode two of the Restoring Friendship bonus season. Don't miss episode three featuring Oakland-based peacemaker, Reverend Ben McBride, who challenges us to be hard on systems and soft on people, to prioritize formation in the stillness so that we can operate with more mercy in the storms, and to honor the image of God in our perceived allies as well as our perceived enemies. For more information on the work of Global Immersion and how we develop everyday people into everyday peacemakers, visit us at globalimmerse.org. Special thanks to Embers, our community of monthly investors who make the Everyday Peacemaking podcast possible. Music for this episode is by Scott Holmes. 
This podcast is produced by Global Immersion and mastered by our good friend, Kip Jones. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate us, and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. Friends, God's restoration is happening. Join in it and know that you're not alone.